Welcome to the podcast. In our last episode, we learned about John Scott and his time briefly serving as president of Long Island, defying the Connecticut colony that believed it had jurisdiction over Long Island and ensuring that the Duke of York's future colony of New York would include Long Island within its domain. Similarly, in this episode, we will be learning about some other islands. Some number of years ago, I was quite surprised to find out that Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket were once colonies existing separately from the Massachusetts Bay Colony or New York or the Plymouth Colony or anywhere else. And that's the story I'm going to tell you today, which starts in 1630 in Massachusetts. And like so many of our stories this season, involves somebody who is either kicked out of Massachusetts or desperately does not want to become part of Massachusetts. And so we begin with the story of Thomas Mayhew, a man who immigrated to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632 or before, meaning that he was present in New England before many of the characters we've already met this season, including the people who had found New Haven and the various settlements in what is now Rhode Island. He made a name for himself in Massachusetts, managing a trading post owned by Matthew Craddock, who was one of the major owners of the Massachusetts Bay Company, that would be the company that owned the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And while he became financially quite successful, he unfortunately lost his first wife and became a widower. Shortly thereafter, he returned to England, where he met a woman by the name of Jane Galleon from a well-to-do family. He married her, and the two returned to Massachusetts. He ran the trading post quite successfully, and there was a lot of money to be made, which does raise the question of what exactly was he selling to the Native Americans? We do know in 1635, he was fined for bad dealings at this trading post. Now, there are two things specifically that were not to be traded to Native Americans. Guns and ammunition, unless the General Court of Massachusetts approved the sale to certain allies, and alcohol, which the Native chiefs constantly complained to colonial authorities about as the young men would get their hands on alcohol and it would ruin them lead to erratic behavior, and generally make them more disorderly. The same exact thing happens today when young men get a hold of alcohol. And so it was probably either guns or alcohol. The fact that he was only fined would indicate to me he was probably selling them alcohol. As in past episodes, for example, the episode on Thomas Morton and Marymount, we know that the punishment for being convicted of selling guns to natives was far harsher. Nevertheless, 1635 in and around there, was the time that Thomas Mayhew stopped working for other people and had made enough money to strike out on his own. He became a major leader in the early settlement of Watertown, Massachusetts. He acquired a large amount of land and built a grist mill, for which he could derive a profit grinding the grains of nearby farmers. He also is known to have built a toll bridge over the Charles River, for which the town became sick of paying him a toll and forced him to sell it to the municipality. And from these brief glimpses from the colonial record, we get the view that Thomas Mayhew was an ambitious businessman, was well-liked by the natives, but every now and then would run afoul with authorities. And when the consequences of this hurt him financially, he decided to look for somewhere else to settle outside of Massachusetts authority. The couple had at least six kids at the time, so they had a lot of people to support. Although for a Puritan family, they were rather small. Which brings into our story the Earl of Sterling, most famous to American lovers of history for his colony of Nova Scotia, New Scotland. The king at the time forced the Council for New England to take off the 
uppermost chunk of their domain and give it to the Earl of Stirling. And so there would be a new Scotland above a new England. But the Earl of Stirling also purchased from this council, and then later confirmed after the council had gone away, the rights, in the English mind anyway, to the islands south of New England proper, the mainland. This would include Long Island, which we addressed in our last episode, but also places like Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, both of which were sold to Thomas Mayhew and his son, Thomas Jr., in 1641. In the deed, Mayhew and son were required to pay a yearly fee to the Earl of Sterling, probably a quit rent. The exact amount is not specified. And most importantly to this podcast, the Earl delegating a power he received from the Council for New England, who themselves received a power from the king himself, granted onto the Mayhews the ability to set up their own colonial government, which would mean, at least in 1641, that Martha's Vineyard and the colonial government of Martha's Vineyard had more validity in the English legal system than even the Massachusetts Bay Colony, whose charter had been recalled for review. This would only be delayed by the upcoming English Civil War. Thomas Mayhew then buys an old claim that Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous held to the islands. And so he has twice purchased the land. And once on Martha's Vineyard, he will have to purchase the land from the natives, acre by acre. Now, there are rumors of earlier English settlement of Martha's Vineyard. It is the legend of the Peace Settlement, P-E-A-S-E which may have existed in the 1630s. However, the documentation for such a settlement is very scarce and late dated. A supposed 17th century colony, and some of the sources are from the 18th and 19th century. But nonetheless, it may have existed. And a more recent paper on the subject that I read just before recording this, actually, was from Martha's Vineyard Museum Quarterly. Their uh, 59th volume, number 4, 2018 in a paper written by A.C. Trapp, Jr. So check that out if you want to dig into the background of the legend of the peace settlement. And even if that settlement did not exist, the Wampanoag of Martha's Vineyard were already well acquainted with the English and had been in contact with them for several decades. As some of the most distant members of the Wampanoag Confederacy, or Paramount Chieftainship, we know that they were part of the same greater collective that made contact with the Pilgrims in 1621. And if you listen to our earlier Wampanoag episodes, you know about the story of Epinal and the less-than-welcoming Wampanoag on Martha's Vineyard in the 16-teens. And so when Thomas Mayhew and his family show up on Martha's Vineyard, the natives there are welcoming, but they're not naive, like many depictions of first contact between Europeans and native groups would have you believe. They were not amazed by the English. They didn't think they were gods as the Mayhews were at least several decades removed from first contact. The Mayhews and the Wampanoag formed a quick friendship. The Wampanoag, just like their kinsfolk on the mainland, had suffered several waves of plagues from at least the 16-teens that devastated the native population. What this meant is that Martha's Vineyard had a lot of land that formerly supported a great deal more people. And so when the Mayhews showed up, land was cheap. And the Wampanoag could allow the English to settle in small numbers, which they did, and still not feel crowded out by them. Of course, you know all of this will change in time. Likewise, the English settlers did not feel hemmed in by the natives. We would see on the mainland, when this happened from either point of view, the two groups get too close together, they begin to get quite paranoid of one another. In at least the short to midterm, 
this wouldn't be a problem on the island. Mayhew's new English settlement would be governed like a fief. That's how many historians describe it. Wherein the landowners, principally the Mayhews, had the right to govern, and anyone who was not a landowner became a subject, paying taxes, much how the Mayhews would pay a quit rent to the Earl of Sterling. And so there were levels of aristocracy on Martha's Vineyard, continuing off-island to the Earl of Sterling, which of course would continue upward to the King of England himself. One little bit of evidence that the Mayhews put themselves above other English residents of the island is that vineyard officials were tax-exempt. Most of these officials would be the Mayhews and their friends and in-laws. And so there are hints in this government, rudimentary as it is, of ideas from an earlier feudal time. But proper settlement did not begin until 1643, when Thomas Mayhew Jr. led a group from Massachusetts, specifically the Watertown area, to the island, being vested with all the powers of his father. They failed to attract any clergy to the island, and so Thomas Mayhew Jr. also served as reverend. Thomas Sr. wouldn't show up with the rest of his family until 1646, where he would assume the principal position as governor. Now, with few settlers and even fewer specialized artisans, the Martha's Vineyard colony remained quite poor materially and had difficulty participating in the larger transatlantic world subsistence being the goal of the first 10 years or so. There was one outside source of money coming into the colony, though. The historian Arthur Railton writes of Thomas Mayhew, His only off-island connection was the missionary money he received from faraway London. The vineyard, his island, was ignored by the colonial governors, and he liked that. In other words, Mayhew and his settlers wanted the isolation, at least for a while. But soon after settlement, Thomas Mayhew Jr. begins efforts to try to convert the natives of Martha's Vineyard. In 1643, he converted a Wampanoag by the name of Hayakums, who was of low rank in Wampanoag society, nevertheless was the spearhead of conversions throughout the island community, which did not go entirely without mishap. It's known at an early date that Hayakums and other converts were cast out of Wampanoag settlements and set apart for their different beliefs. As we've seen in this season and previous seasons, in Native American societies, when Christian converts stop participating in the rituals of their people that were intended to please certain spirits that would guarantee a good harvest, or a mild winter, a successful hunt, and so on, the traditional community usually gets upset by this because they are not participating in the continuation of these rituals that would guarantee that nature remain in favor of their existence. But the resistance on Martha's Vineyard was not as great as we saw in the Huron Confederacy of last season. As a plague hits the island, and it greatly affects the natives, once again, the new English presence probably brought some old world diseases with them. And the Wampanoag begin to see... Christian conversion and the ceremonies established with it, such as baptism, as a cure or preventative to these diseases, they probably noticed that the English were not nearly as affected as the native population. And as all humans do, every time there is an effect, you look for the cause. Christian rituals and ceremonies, in their way, somewhat resembled native practices of healing rituals, warding off bad spirits, or placating spirits that might be offended. And so when they saw the practices associated with conversion to Christianity and then the health of the English, 
they assumed that it was some sort of way to ward off these plagues. And so the conversions began. Some of that might sound speculative, but we actually have records from the island, from the Mayhews themselves. Mayhew Jr. records that he was asked numerous times to perform healing prayers. The Wampanoag requesting this would be asking essentially for their equivalent of a healing ritual. And so it's not such a stretch to infer that the sudden increase in conversion was also related to the effect of the plagues. I digress. Any way you look at it, by the late 1640s, Thomas Mayhew Jr. was perhaps the most successful missionary to the natives in New England, who could only be rivaled by John Eliot on the mainland. And so by the year 1649, he begins receiving funds from the Gospel Society, which collected money in England that was then given to the New England Confederation and then distributed for the education and conversion of the natives. And for a while, that was the only money coming into Martha's Vineyard, an otherwise very isolated English colony. And this all sounds very nice, but there was, there was still hints of malice towards the natives, which we can't sweep under the rug. For one, the Gospel Society referred to Thomas Mayhew Jr. as the ruler of Indians on Martha's Vineyard. Back to the English on the island, there really was no formal government until 1653. The Mayhews family, again, ruling like a fief, they were simply the lords and everyone else the subjects. In 1653, they added more structure to that design. But at the end of the day, it was still the Mayhews family and their in-laws, or sometimes friends, who filled nearly every position. The next year in 1654, we see the first school on the island. And it actually was a school for the Native Americans, not the English. Again, the English community remained materially poor. Whereas through Mayhews Jr., there were funds to be spent on the Wampanoag. Now, this school was designed to be a feeder into what will become Harvard's Indian College. And in 1656, Thomas Mayhews Jr. selects from his own school, Hayakum's son and the son of the local Sachem, who was probably Chief Chesachamuk, to attend Harvard, the Gospel Society funds paying their way. Now, moving into the year 1657 or so, it's interesting to note that Thomas Mayhew Jr. really seems to be the driving spirit of the island, both, both English and native. He was on the island first. He created the first settlement. He's converting the natives, carrying on good relations with the natives. However, in November of 1657, Thomas Mayhew Jr. is lost at sea. A devastating blow for the Mayhews family. However, even without Jr., it seems like the English colony on the island was in a state of expansion. The next year, Thomas Mayhew Sr. purchased a large chunk of the entire island from Chief Chesachamunk. This would be the beginning of the English not just occupying enclaves of the island, but slowly becoming the most populous inhabitants. Which nicely brings us to another island. Back in 1641, Thomas Mayhews didn't just purchase Martha's Vineyard, but also Nantucket and the many small little islands in between those two. 18 years after his purchase in 1659, like the Mayhews before them, there were new families in Massachusetts who wanted to get out of there. Now Nantucket was inhabited by both Wampanoag and a group called the Nauset. Now Nantucket was even further away from the Wampanoag paramount settlement of Pocasset. And the island, depending on the description, was variably split between Wampanoag peoples and the closely related Nauset, who often fell under the Wampanoag label. 
but enjoying the isolation that they receive from being the Native American group on an island in the ocean in the extreme southeast corner of New England, they did not require much leadership from the mainland. And although considered part of the Wampanoag Confederacy, their participation in mainland Native politics was minimal, and their allegiance to any mainland authority questionable. Now, in the years since Thomas Mayhew purchased the island, he had used it as grazing land for his livestock. The historian ABC Whipple says of Thomas Mayhew, He dealt honorably with Nantucket's Indians. He was careful to reimburse them for the pasturage he used and make sure that his flocks did not stray off the land he had rented from them. And so for the future English inhabitants of Nantucket, the Mayhews had already been there, opened peaceful relations with the natives there, and most importantly in 1659, were willing to sell it to this new group. But before doing so, in the summer of 1659, the Mayhews purchased the native claim to much of the island from the Sachems Wanakmanamak and Nikanus. Now the natives would not be surprised or offended by the new arrivals. Politically divided between an east and west portion, the natives on Nantucket, much like those on Martha's Vineyard, were subject to the conversion efforts of the Mayhew family. And so when the 1659 sale went through and our Nantucket settlers would show up, Christian Wampanoag were already there. Of the Nantucket land that Mayhew's purchased from the natives, he split it up into 10 lots. One lot he kept for himself. This would be Masquatuck, Nantucket today. The nine other portions were sold to men mostly from Salisbury, Massachusetts. Each then took on a partner of equal measure. And so now there were 18 outstanding shares outside of Mayhew's portion, which would stand separate and not be part of what will become the Nantucket proprietary government. And the reason why they wanted to leave Massachusetts so badly is the same as we've seen with other characters this season. We'll start with Thomas Macy, who is the ancestor to the Macy's department store family. Thomas Macy was actually Mayhew's cousin. It's likely that this connection is what brought these men from Massachusetts to Nantucket in the first place. In Macy's case, he became a Baptist and so did not find himself in the congregational Puritan fold. This would divorce him from any political power or suffrage that could be had. But the inciting incident that most directly prompted his move to Nantucket was when the Massachusetts Bay Colony charged him with harboring Quakers who were not allowed in the colony. This would be analogous to providing room and board to a known fugitive at least in the legal sense. But in reality, a Quaker simply has strange beliefs compared to a Puritan. They're not doing anything that would endanger another person's physical safety. And Thomas Macy argued that the Quakers, whomever they were, just a couple people, only visited his homestead for about 45 minutes. He wasn't harboring them, they were visiting him. It was this type of micromanaging of social interactions that pushed a lot of people out of Massachusetts at the time. But besides Macy, the prime mover in this new Nantucket colony was a man by the name of Tristram Coffin, for whom we have a less clear picture of his grievances with Massachusetts, but it is known that he likely came from a royalist family, whereas Massachusetts subtly at first, but very firmly, came down on the side of the anti-royalists or the parliamentarians, or the Puritans who were in league with the parliamentarians. 
not terribly important right now. But it is known that Tristram Coffin is the man that heard about Mayhew's little colony on Martha's Vineyard through his cousin Macy and sailed to Martha's Vineyard in the first place to obtain an island for themselves. To quote the author Frank Gimbreth Jr., Tristram Coffin was the moving spirit of the venture and is considered the father of Nantucket. Four generations later, he had 1,500 descendants, and Coffin would be the first name on Mayhew's deed for both Nantucket and the much smaller nearby Tuckernuck Island. But it would be the Macy family in fall of 1659 who sailed a small craft through the chilled air to arrive on Nantucket first. Macy, his wife, his five kids, and three friends. They were greeted by the Wampanoag there who were expecting them. Just ten in total, as it was late in the year, they quickly had to make a winter habitation. And it is known that the Wampanoag supported them through those cold months. I only say this to underscore the point that this wasn't an invasion. It wasn't an unauthorized settlement. The English and the Wampanoag, both sides understood exactly what was going on here. And no, that doesn't excuse later mistreatment of the Native Americans. But we tend to use the later mistreatment of Native Americans to shade earlier interactions with intentions or even actions that aren't present yet. The rest of the founding families, again, most from Salisbury, Massachusetts, broke down their houses on the mainland and brought over the materials to rebuild them on Nantucket. These settlers would be coming over in early 1660. Now, there are several histories of Nantucket that mentions that these first settlers fell under the domain of the colonial New York government. Well, in 1660, there is no New York. Those texts are wrong. And that's why Nantucket, along with Martha's Vineyard, are part of this podcast. There will be no New York on paper, really, until 1663, and in reality, until 1664, which caused me to take a deep dive into the subject, because how did the people on Nantucket govern themselves until a New York jurisdiction could be established over Nantucket? As it turns out, they operated a proprietary government very similar to a joint stock company. You had the English settlement divided into 18 equally sized lots, and the male heads of family would each have a 1/18th share in that government. Where it gets dicey is not all of the families, not all of the proprietors actually moved to Nantucket and would instead assign a proxy. And that proxy would have a disproportionate amount of power because now they not only spoke for their share, but multiple shares. It's not one person, one vote. If I control three properties, I get a three vote out of 18, whereas you might have just your homestead. That's a one vote out of 18. It's again, like owning shares in a company. If you own 10 shares of Bank of America, when it comes time to vote on something like board members, my vote would count for one-tenth the power of someone who owns 100 shares. And proprietary colonies often work this way. How much investment do you have in this colony? That's how much say you have. It is proportional to what you have risked financially. And as far as the government on Nantucket is concerned, Tristram Coffin had the proxy for at least three families that did not migrate to Nantucket and also his own share. And the sources get dicey on the division of things, but in the very least, that means he had four shares out of the 18. No matter what the exact proportion is, Coffin always had a disproportionate vote. As such, he was elected governor of the settlement, which sounds like a big deal. But let me demonstrate how quaint all of this really is. 
1660 sources say there were 10 families on the island. And we know those shares were split. So in the upcoming years, we know at most there were 18 to 20 families on the island. And we already know that some of them were not actually present on the island. They were just proprietors. The male heads of these families, being the proprietors, would have the ability to vote. So we're talking about an electorate of less than 20 people. And in the first year or two, well less than 15 people. It was such a small group, in fact, that they actually met in the house of Nathaniel and Mary Starbuck, their private home, which the people of Nantucket came to call the Parliament House. And being that it was her house, Mary Starbuck is known for being the outspoken one of the couple. Mary being the daughter of Tristram Coffin, well aware of her family's status on the island, And so while being denied any sort of suffrage, there is the small acknowledgement that, hey, you're in my house. And at this time, the household was considered the sphere of womanhood. If you are in the woman's house, the woman gets to speak. And this form of limited corporate self-government sufficed for them. Moving further into the decade, the nine shares that were divided into 18 shares were eventually divided into 27 total shares in order to attract more colonists. And the same two sachems who made the original sales continue to make further sales to the Nantucket settlers. Moving into 1663, the government becomes slightly more formal. There's more records. They refer to their meetings as a meeting of the inhabitants. And there are references to something resembling a common fund, which means that taxes were assessed and collected. But remember, we're talking about a sub-grant here at the end of the day. The Earl of Sterling is the proprietor, the noble proprietor, at the head of everything, who has delegated all of his rights and privileges onto Mayhew, given that Mayhew pays him an annual fee. And so it is conditional. And it is from Mayhew's purchase that the Nantucket colony derives its legality in the English system, and it too would thus be dependent on Mayhew's paying the Lord who again has not vacated his rights to the land to the Mayhews, but more accurately worked as a feudal lord who created a fief subservient to his own to someone who was of lesser status. This becomes important because in the same year that Nantucket's really starting to take off, 1663, the Earl of Clarendon purchases the Lord Sterling's rights to these islands, which includes Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, all the little tiny islands about and Long Island. And Clarendon was the purchasing agent for the Duke of York. And in the following year, New Netherland would be invaded by the English and given to the Duke of York, who of course was the king's brother and the future James II, New Netherland became New York. The bottom chunk was split off to become New Jersey. Now on paper, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and the smaller islands thereabout were in New York's jurisdiction. However... It would be years before any colonial governor from New York would come around to even take notice of these islands. And so the settlers continued to govern themselves just as they did before, knowing that under the Lord Sterling's original agreement with Mayhew, they had the right to self-government. And until anybody took the time to actually sail out to these islands to say otherwise, they weren't going to do boo about it. Nevertheless, we know that the end of their independence is coming. We know it's near. But for the Wampanoag on Nantucket, this was a time where they asserted their newly found independence from the rest of the Wampanoag Confederacy. 
or Paramount Chieftainship. Being its most distant members, and now having the community of the English near them, they paid less and less deference to the chief at Pocasset. And in 1665, this would be King Philip, who heard that a Wampanoag on the island said the name of his dead father. Now, in Wampanoag culture, this would be considered a grave curse, a terrible blasphemous thing to do to say the name of the great dead chief. King Philip travels to Nantucket, expecting to find the chiefs there to be his ally, especially in this case of the desecration of another chief, Philip's own father. What happened instead is that the Nantucket Wampanoag refused to identify the native who said his father's name, refused to give him any hospitality, and threatened by force if necessary to remove him from the island. The Nantucket English, receiving word of what was going on, offered to pay off King Philip. And together, the two groups managed to run off Philip. And actually, there's a place on Nantucket today called Philip's Run. After this, the Wampanoag pledged their friendship to the English. Why this is important and will come up in our Wampanoag episodes is that it very directly demonstrates that the Wampanoag in their individual communities were aligning with the English over their own native leadership. And this will be part of the breakdown of the great Wampanoag Confederacy. And especially on Nantucket Island, it will serve to protect the native population there during the later King Philip's War. The trust they're building in the 1660s will help in the 1670s, where the mainland Wampanoag are being sold off to slavery in the West Indies. The English and Wampanoag on Nantucket Island trust each other. Now back on Martha's Vineyard, Mayhew's colony, Chief Cheschamunk's son, who went by the name Caleb, graduated Harvard's Indian College. He's the actual only person to ever graduate that short-lived college. And I bring up both of these subjects, again, to indicate that the relations that the natives had with the English on these islands were far better than the mainland, at least at this early period. And so we have our two little island colonies, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, living on borrowed time. But rolling into the year 1670, New York finally sends someone out to these islands to clarify whose jurisdiction the islands fall under. Governor Lovelace of New York requested from Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard all land sales, all deeds, all paperwork from the earlier sterling purchase, anything they still had from the native purchases, anything at all that would validate the land ownership over the islands and their operation of independent governments outside of New York's jurisdiction. And if they did not, they ran the risk of having all of this invalidated. Now, Tristram Coffin of Nantucket, of course, went to Thomas Mayhew of Martha's Vineyard to make sure that he still had a copy of his original purchase from the Earl of Sterling, because it is from that that everything else is derived. Thomas Mayhew, of course, did not have that copy. Everyone is rattled by this. Mayhew sends his grandson to New York to meet with Governor Lovelace in person. His grandson, John, is subject to a cold reception by Governor Lovelace, who would not make an agreement with the grandson and demanded Thomas Mayhew come in person to meet with him. Now, this isn't a get on an Amtrak request. This isn't, oh, I'm going to buy a plane ticket. I'm going to take an Uber. Thomas Mayhew in 1670 is 77 years old, a 17th century, 77 years old. It's hard to paint a picture of his physical condition, but even if he was a healthy 77-year-old, 
in the 17th century. He probably wasn't spry. Nobody would use that term to describe him. Nevertheless, considering the importance of going to New York for everyone in his own colony and Nantucket, he travels to see Governor Loveless, having no paperwork to demonstrate the validity of his occupation of Martha's Vineyard, let alone any authority to have sold Nantucket away. Well, as it turns out, when he gets to New York, the Loveless administration had already found the necessary paperwork to validate Mayhew's claim for both island colonies. Furthermore, Governor Loveless was simply charmed by Thomas Mayhew. Uh, the records don't indicate exactly why, but Loveless makes Thomas Mayhew governor for life of Martha's Vineyard. Which sounds grand, but remember, he's 77 years old. The man has probably purchased his last raincoat, if you know what I'm saying. He also allows Thomas Mayhew to completely revamp the map of Martha's Vineyard, rename places, and Loveless creates a manor for for Mayhew, entitles him Lord of the Manor of Tisbury, which was located on the western half of the island. But all of this came at a price. Yes, he would be governor for life, but that would be governor of a colony that was a subservient entity, an appendix of the colony of New York. He would be governor of the island, but Loveless would be governor of him. And thus Martha's Vineyard fell within the domain of New York. And in his submission, Thomas Mayhew returned to the vineyard in 1671 and actually had more power than when he was an independent governor. He was now allowed to collect different types of taxes he never could before, having the backing of New York. And of course, now he had his own manor. To say the least, the people on the island were not happy about that. Let's turn to Nantucket now. Thomas Mayhew, of course, reports the details of his trip to the inhabitants on Nantucket who again are in the same basket. And in June of 1671, Mayhew's cousin on the island, the aforementioned Thomas Macy, went to New York to formally submit Nantucket to New York. And in surrendering their independence from the colony of New York, they had all of their land grants and purchases confirmed by the new New York colonial government. These corporate board meeting of inhabitants ended in 1671, and Governor Lovelace, appoints Tristram Coffin chief magistrate of the island. And in what may have been a sweetheart deal, all that Nantucket Island had to give to the public coffers of the New York government was four barrels of codfish a year. Nevertheless, this small tax, as you could call it, confirmed that, like Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket was now a subsidiary division of the New York colony. In June of 1672, Nantucket holds its first general court, its New York-approved form of local government. Under this new general court, the original proprietors of the island were given two votes each. Meanwhile, the men who settled the island after the original founders and owned enough land were given a single vote. These became known as the half-share men, who, even if they owned the same amount of land as an original settler, still only received half of the voting power. They greatly resented this, and even Tristram Coffin didn't like this new system of government as it reduced what he had before, where he essentially made up at least a quarter of the electorate. The half-share men created a plan whereby they would deliver the four barrels of cod to the governor of New York and thus gain an audience with him and gripe about the Coffin government. Coffin received word of this plan, and he too planned to go to New York in order to see if the governor would agree to a restoration 
of the former system, whereby he had more power. Well, the half-share men get there first, and they managed to convince Governor Loveless to give uh, voting rights of equal status to all land-owning men. Coffin was furious when he heard about this, but by the time he was ready to go see Governor Loveless, unknown to everyone involved, the Dutch had reinvaded what it used to call New Netherland, and had now occupied it. New York, for a brief time, 1673 into 74, was no more, and the English on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard were left as they were before New York ever existed. And in the confusion, the half-share men on Nantucket led an open revolt against the Coffin government. And until the restoration of New York, the island was split into two camps. Very much the same thing was going on on Martha's Vineyard, where it is recorded that the majority of the English on Martha's Vineyard participated in a rebellion against the rule of Governor for Life Thomas Mayhew, which began, it is believed, because Mayhew was taxing without providing representation. Yes, there was no taxation without representation, and that gave them the justification to rebel. Their grandchildren would do quite the same in the next century. As it turns out, Mayhew was levying taxes, again, by the authority of New York, but did not hold elections. Of course, not for governor, but for any position. He continued to merely appoint family members and friends. And without the authority of New York to back him, they rebelled and formed a rival government, which then petitioned the Massachusetts Bay Company to absorb Martha's Vineyard. Yes, the very place that the original settlers on Martha's Vineyard were trying to avoid. Now, Massachusetts, you would think this would be the end of the story, right? Because Martha's Vineyard is part of Massachusetts. Massachusetts rejects the request because they know that if New York is restored to the Duke of York, it would be in trouble for absorbing a portion of the Duke's colony. Again, the future King James II. And indeed, when the English did retake New York and the New York colonial government was reestablished, Coffin on Nantucket and Mayhew's on Martha's Vineyard used their authority as New York officials to force the submission of the rebels. In 1675, Thomas Mayhew's, now well into his 80s, finds those in charge of the rebellion and forces many of that opposition party off the island completely and threatens many into submission by simply indicating that he would have those opposed to him deported to mainland New York for trial. On Nantucket, Tristram Coffin had the voting system that the half-share men received from the former New York governor rescinded and reinstituted the system where the original proprietors of the island receive two votes to be cast however they like, whereas the newer landowners would only receive one. The ruling families on both islands now reasserted their status, which would last for generations. And whereas the 1670s for mainland New England proved to be a disaster for the English and native alike, as King Philip's War proved to be per capita one of the deadliest wars ever, especially in American history, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, both the English and Wampanoag, were spared the atrocities of the mainland. Nevertheless, in terms of what we do on this podcast, we're at the end of the road. These islands, like Long Island in our last episode, were now firmly within New York jurisdiction. The colony of New York, of course, being the predecessor to the state of New York, I am now violating the other states of America 
Creed. Nevertheless, you're probably screaming at me right now because you know that Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard are not within New York jurisdiction today and in fact are part of Massachusetts. Well, how does that happen? I'm not going to tell you because it does involve an other state of America. Later in this season, we will have two episodes at least on the Dominion of New England. And the rise and fall of the Dominion will explain how Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket ended up becoming part of Massachusetts. But you'll have to wait for that. I'm Eric Giannis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>